The statements expressed in the following program are those of the speaker. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the sponsor, the hosts, and or Olas Media. Olas Media presents Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. After 40 years of waiting, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, we found her, we found her. Missing baby Holly has been found. I said, oh my God, this is a gift from heaven. The bizarre mystery began in the 1980s when two bodies were discovered in a wooded area in Houston, Texas. Police reported it was likely the man and woman had been murdered. But authorities say they didn't know their identities until about six months ago when the forensic genealogy firm Identifiders International used DNA to identify them as Tina and Harold Dean Klaus. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to Inside Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert podcast. I am Anne-Marie Schubert. This podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases, really not just in California history, but across the country. The podcast also examines some of the most unique cases that sometimes have unexpected endings. And today is one of those cases that we're going to talk about that is unique, and I would say has an unexpected ending in a, would say, a twist. This case that we're going to talk about today is often referred to as the Baby Holly case. My guests today are my friend Mindy Montford, uh, Rachel Kading. They're both from the Texas AG's office, their cold case and missing persons unit, and Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick, for, who is with Identifinders International. So thank you and welcome, everybody. Thank you. Hi, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for being here, you guys. Okay, I'm going to start with Mindy and Rachel. Uh, Mindy, I'll start with you and ask if you can just kind of tell the listeners who you are, what's your background, and what you're doing for the Attorney General's office in Texas right now. Sure. And we're really happy to be here. Thanks for giving this case um, some exposure. As you know, it's, it's halfway solved. So we're really uh, we're glad to be here for that reason. Our cool case unit is actually a very new unit. We started it with the Texas Attorney General's office in around um, 2021. And we started taking cases for review that December. So the baby Holly, Tina and um, Dean Klaus case was actually one of our first cases that we were able to review. And my background, I um, was with the Travis County DA's office here in Austin, Texas for years and did kind of a little bit of everything, family violence, sexual assault, capital murders, public integrity, you name it. I also had a little bit of a uh, stint in private practice for a while on the criminal defense side, which made me, I think, a better prosecutor because I was able to return to prosecution as the first assistant um, in a new administration that took office in 2017. And that's where I really became more involved in cold case work. We collaborated with the Austin Police Department and really tried to bring some life to these cases that had just sat around for a while. That actually inspired me to um, kind of create this unit, this idea of a statewide unit. And I went and brought it to the Texas Attorney General's office. I thought that would be a good place to have a statewide unit. And General Paxton um, graciously agreed to 
at least give us one slot, you know, come on. And if you build it, maybe they will come. So that is what happened. I started in 2021 and then Rachel Kading joined me as our first full-time investigator. And then we started working on baby Holly and we've been blowing and going ever since. Okay. Rachel, how about you? What's your background? Um, so I'm actually from Colorado. I was a peace officer there for about 12 years before we moved to Texas and uh, glad to be in Texas, by the way. Um, once we moved to Texas, I continued in law enforcement, obviously came to the AG's office um, and worked as a special um, investigator um, in that unit for a while before the cold case unit was started. And actually in the special investigations unit, I was already getting some of these types of cases, even though they weren't really slated to come to our office, we still received some of them. So I was very excited when the prospect of having an actual cold case unit came because that meant that somebody could just dedicate their time to only doing those types of cases instead of doing a cold case homicide and maybe a financial crime or like a public integrity, you know, having all of those things on your plate is pretty difficult. So um, as Mindy said, um, the, the unit was started. I was the investigator um, selected to go to the unit. And the this case was the first case that we really dug into. So pretty exciting. Yeah, very cool. So before I get to Dr. Fitzpatrick, um, just in terms of your unit, um, Mindy, how many, is it just you and Rachel? Or do you have other people that are helping you have, I think you've told me before about volunteers and all that. Yeah, it's, you know, again, we started with one and now we have two full-time investigators, um, Rachel, and we have another one, Sergeant Anthony Carter. We then also formed a retired uh, task force, a retired homicide investigators task force. And we really tried to select sort of the best of the best um, retired homicide investigators from different police departments across the state. And they have just done an amazing job. They dedicate hundreds of hours to case reviews. And then they give um, sort of their suggestions to us and to the local agencies about how we might proceed next. They're really invested in the cases. It's, it's really worked well. Um, we also, one of the great things about putting this unit in the AG's office is we have investigators all over the state in different units that cover different areas. So if we need to pick up evidence or get a statement or, you know, um, just a little bit of help in one county that's, you know, hundreds of miles away. We, we have people we can reach out to within our office to assist us. And that, that makes us unique. We also have prosecutors in house. Um, I'm assigned to this unit, obviously, but we have an entire division with prosecutors. And so we really kind of can be a one stop shop for these cases. They can, you know, we can start at the investigation phase and if they, you know, if we are able to find a suspect, we can even take it through the prosecution stage. So I think that's why it makes sense to put it in the AG's office. I was quite frankly shocked when I started the unit to find there were only really a few AG's offices around the country that had such a unit. I think it's such a great idea. And I, I wish more states would do that. Actually, Florida, um, based on what we're doing, they have now received legislative funding to start their own unit. So it's exciting. I hope other states uh, follow that path as well. Super exciting. One thing I should mention for the listeners is that we're all in different places. So we're, we're doing this whole thing remotely. So if there's a difference in the sound, that's that's why. Um, one of the things before, again, I go to Colleen, I want to just mention you and I met 
not long after the Golden State Killer case. So Mindy, just maybe explain for the listeners the amazing work you're doing in Texas on both training and policy work around this idea of forensic investigative genetic genealogy. Well, sure. And I have to give uh, Anne-Marie a lot of credit for that because when I was with the DA's office, you and your team were gracious enough to spend hours upon hours with us to work on one of our um, really uh, an unsolved case that's rocked the uh, Austin community. And we were so grateful for the time you gave us. And during that meeting, we all learned so much about you know, technology and genealogy and things that existed outside of Texas. And that really sparked the idea of, wow, if Austin, Texas, as progressive and informative as we are, if, if we don't know about a lot of this, then, you know, how do departments around the state know about this? And so you mentioned the training. That is a big part of the AG's unit because I, I had wished as a prosecutor, I had had some of these tools and knew about some of these things. And so we have now, uh, we've held about three statewide trainings. They've all been free. We're about to do another one in December. That's, there will be a fee, but we're trying to keep it very, very low cost because the idea is to bring these tools to all counties and all parts of Texas so that, you know, it's not just the big counties that are using uh, forensic investigative genetic genealogy or DNA technology. We want everybody to be able to know about these tools and use these tools. So training is incredibly important. And I, I also want to add something we mentioned a little bit before we, we started the, the podcast. When I first started researching the number of cases out there, I was astonished to learn that there were over 20,000 unsolved homicide cases in the state of Texas alone. And I don't even think that's an accurate number. I think there are way more than that. Um, and then nation, you know, nationwide, you're talking about 270,000. So this is a problem. And as you've seen, you know, genealogy can solve so many of these cases. And it's just right. a matter of knowing what these departments have and taking an inventory and giving them these tools to use so that we can solve these crimes. And the resources to help them with it. And that's that's where, like, Colleen, I'm going to have you kind of tell your background. I mean, you've been in this field for a very long time, probably making less than 10 cents an hour uh, because of the amount of work you've done. But maybe just start with your, tell the listeners, you know, I'm astonished by your background, but tell them who you are, what your background is, and how you got into this this world of, Forensic Investigative Genetic Well, um, my name is Colleen Fitzpatrick. I'm the founder of Identifinders International. And um, my background is I have a doctorate in nuclear physics from Duke University. And after I got my PhD, I really worked in lasers for a long time in aerospace, in a, a small high-tech think tank. And I had my own company for 16 years where I contracted with NASA and the Department of Defense, the National Science Foundation, and so on. In about 2005, we uh, had to close up. The, the atmosphere and the environment had changed for small companies under George Bush because he was more of a big company president. So at that time, I had my book, Forensic Genealogy, done. You know, it was sort of my therapy while all this was, the walls were burning down around me. <laughs> and, um, you know, we published it ourselves, and it, it was a smash. You know, I, it was sort of an unexpected smash. And that 
kind of directed me into the forensic area, you know, slowly. Um, and so because, you know, my technical background, I can be more involved in the not just genealogy side, but the technical side as well. I think it's not quite recognized that there's two parts to, to solving any case. The first one is to manage the DNA. And the second is to convert it to right. data that can be used for genealogy, the genealogy part. So I think that because of my science background, you know, I have this unique capability of like being a DNA whisperer. You know, I've uh, there have been cases that have had really compromised DNA samples that I've been able to kind of shepherd through the system and make it work where I think that, you know, just plain trying it wouldn't have worked. You know, it take, took extra care. So I'm very, uh, you know, it, I find it very gratifying to be able to do that. And so, you know, the, the guests here are like old timers as far as cold cases go and forensics and legal area. Um, and I'm a newcomer in that regard, but I'm an old timer in the forensic genealogy area because um, in 2011, I had this crazy idea that maybe genealogy could be applied to uh, cold case work. And I thought, well, the Y DNA follows the male line of the family. We all know that in genealogy. Why not have a profile from a cold case instead of a profile from an adoptee? Maybe we could get the name of a perpetrator using that. So I went to the Seattle Police Department to tell them my idea. And after they laughed me out the room, you know, <laughs> you know, who's laughing now is the is the theme here. Um, but they were not really interested. They right. thought, oh, this crazy little old lady, you know, whatever. My supervisor told me to give her an audience for an hour. But it turned out that, um, you know, the, there was uh, Jody Sass was a DNA analyst in that meeting. And she understood. And that was when she said, I understand what you're saying. That was kind of the beginning of that click you know, between the genealogy and the forensic community that has blossomed since then. And I have to say that in 2011, you know, there was a lot of skepticism, but I will say that the, we eventually, it took, it took till 2019 to solve the case. There were many interesting aspects of that. Okay. What people don't understand is during that gap, I was tracking the technology and I had that case. I had SNP testing done six times starting in two, the, the Y DNA didn't work. You know, it didn't go anywhere. It went cold again, but we developed a person of interest by the name that I thought it might be and it Fuller. And there was a gal in her class that was named Fuller and he became a person of interest because of his name, his whereabouts and so on. But it, it wasn't him. He gave his DNA. It wasn't him, but he had the same Y profile as the killer. So he was related to the killer somehow. And so that prompted me to start looking into SNP testing. And from that point on, I tried six times. And every time I tried, I, it was a new development in technology I was trying. And it got to 2019 on the sixth try that it worked. And we were able to identify Patrick Leon Nicholas as the perpetrator, as the offender. And about a month ago, he was he was convicted. And a couple of weeks ago, he was sentenced to 45 years in prison. So the beginning and the end, that's probably the coldest case so far in genealogy that has come across. But it was gratifying because when I heard that, 
he was convicted, the guilty verdict, I couldn't help but have a flashback to that day in that room when those two detectives were just not listening. And we did it. You know, I can't, I can't tell you how big that is for me. Right. Well, yeah, because you've brought answers to families yeah. that have waited for so long. And, you know, just for the listener's sake, the case you're talking about is a murder of a young girl in, in, um, Washington, Kings County, named Sarah Yarber. She was, what, yeah. 16 years old or so? And it went unsolved. And ultimately, you became one of the critical witnesses. Um, and you really provided the lead to law yeah. enforcement that ultimately led to Yeah, conviction. It, it has a lot of aspects, right. you know, that, you know, you could talk about forever. You know, testifying in court, you know, and why that happened. You know, there was something to do. I'm learning myself. I learned a lot. You know, this is what I like. And there was some um, issues with the right. Constitution of the state of Washington and the privacy laws that got brought up. So that's why I testified. So, you know, it, it has a lot of, okay. um, you know, different aspects of that case that are very, it's very rich in education, you know, and how this works. And, you know, so I went forward right. in that in 2015. I spoke to the Phoenix Police Department and that became the first case that was solved using genetic genealogy. It, you know, let's say I'm not taking away from the Golden State Killer because that's the one that really, you know, brought it out, you know, and, and really sparked the revolution. Right. But, you know, that and, and that has to say with risk versus benefit, because in the early days, it, it you know, there was no solves, nothing. And, and, you know, the Phoenix Police Department took that risk. They saw that the risk versus benefit, if they tried it, the benefit was there. So they had some early, early um, agencies that took me up on my offer. Phoenix was the first case that was really solved doing that. And so since then, uh, and when the SNP testing came in, Golden State Killer, et cetera, those agencies were the first ones to jump on the SNP testing because they were the forward thinking agencies, you know, that saw the benefit and could take the risk. And now that time is going on and there's so many cases being solved, there's a lot more agencies able to do that. You know, they, they see the benefit more. They, it's not as risky because we know how it works better. We know what cases are, are say more tractable. We know some of the issues. We know where we're going. We know the developments have to be. So it's only going right. to get more useful right. from here on out. Yeah. And that's where it gets into the policy things about it that you have to have funding to do this work. I mean, there's there's over a million profiles in, in the DNA databank in the U.S. that have DNA. So those are cases that are rich for the opportunity to solve them. But let's let's go back to this amazing case, what's called Baby Holly. It really originated in January of 1981 in Harris County, Texas. And I'll ask Rachel, uh, as the investigator uh, on this case later in years, to kind of describe what happened in 81. Uh, so basically what happened in 1981, um, there were just a few back on Wallaceville Road is where the bodies were found. And there were just a few residences there at the time. Um, and a, a dog owned by one of the property owners had brought up a human arm um, is basically how this this crime was discovered. So Harris County Sheriff's Office came out and responded. And in the days um, following this, did a search of the area looking for the the location of where the rest of this body might be. Um, and they did locate the two bodies, um, determined to be a male and a female victim. 
And once the bodies were discovered, um, investigation ensued, but the bodies were unidentified. So back in 1981, there obviously were not the tools that we have today to be able to identify people. So nobody had come forward to say, you know, where our loved ones are missing. Um, there were no witnesses that were identified. Um, there were efforts made to identify them. Their fingers were cast for fingerprints, those types of things. But again, no results were ever found. So the case basically goes cold because they can't identify the victims and therefore you can't really um, investigate a crime if you don't know who your victims are. So, so they, was it, what was the cause of death on um, the male and the female? The um, Harris County Forensic Institute did the um, autopsies and their determination was that the male victim um, died from blunt force trauma to the head and the female victim died from strangulation. Now, you said that over the years, there were efforts made to identify fingerprints and DNA. Um, at some point, was were the bodies, did they have to exhume those bodies to do that type of work? They did. So um, back in 1981, once, you know, they had completed everything they could, the bodies were actually buried in the Potter's Field there in, in Harris County. Then in 2011, um, the Harris County Forensic Institute received a grant from the DOJ to start to try to identify some of their unidentified. So in 2011, these two bodies specifically were exhumed, DNA was extracted, and those DNA profiles were uploaded into CODIS, but there were no matches. Okay. So at some point then, I'm going to turn it back to Colleen, Dr. Fitzpatrick, in terms at some point with your experience with forensic genealogy, when did you um, get in January of February 2021, um, one of the genealogists on my crew, um, n you know, was browsing NamUs and came across the case. Uh, it's What's NamUs? National Clearinghouse for Missing Persons, Unidentified Remains, and Unclaimed Bodies. Um, it's sort of a watering hole where agencies can upload their uh, cases, you know, their, un their cases like that to make them known to other agencies. And we, we were browsing, we had just received a grant from AudioChuck for a couple of cases to do a couple of uh, forensic genealogy cases. And Misty Gillis came across these cases that seemed linked. And so we thought we'd apply the grant to, you know, identifying these John and Jane, this John and Jane Doe. So we contacted Deborah Pinto, who at the time was the director of forensic anthropology at the Institute of Forensic Science in Houston. And, you know, she agreed that that would be okay with her, that we could move forward with the case. And so it took uh, probably till May or so to kind of organize ourselves on what would happen. And um, at that time, they sent, uh, I believe, teeth of the to the, the man and the woman, a tooth from each one of those to uh, Intermountain Forensics and Astria for extraction, after which they were sent to the lab called Hudson Alpha for sequencing and development of genetic genealogy profiles, SNP, SNP sets that we could upload to GEDmatch, which is the database we use for, for you know, our work. Right. The GEDmatch is a genealogy database that people mm -hmm. voluntarily opt into to help law enforcement or folks like you to help yeah. identify people, solve That's cases. That's correct. And it's not associated with any testing company. We don't use Ancestry. Any of those companies really won't work with us. 
um, it's GEDmatch, but also Family Tree DNA, which is the, you know, the smaller of the large companies. They allow us to use their database, but I, and we use both, but I, um, but it went very quickly and, you know, almost immediately within about a week, we had a uh, Dean identified, uh, based on his matches and how they networked into the family and where he fit. And we usually, uh, as a rule, we allow, we rely on the agencies to call the family or to figure out what's going on. Uh, but in this case, Deborah Pinto did not have uh, an investigator to help her with that. So we went ahead and contacted the family. And the question was, you know, we're calling you. Are you, do you have a missing person in your family? And the answer was, uh, yes, I believe uh, we were talking to one of the sisters. And he says, yes, um, my brother Dean disappeared 40 years ago, something like that. Um, and immediately we said, well, we really should inform you that, you know, we believe we've identified him as a John Doe, you know, in Harris County, Texas. And at that point, the family said, well, what about his wife, Tina? Well, there was a Jane Doe we were working on. And, you know, that's not why we were calling. But obviously, you know, that could be the Jane Doe. And when we worked on her tree, it fit perfectly. We were actually presented with the answer. We, it wasn't like we were searching for Jane Doe. We had a candidate and we confirmed that that fit in with what we were doing. And then, of course, that leads to the, the big story in that the next question was, well, what happened to their baby Holly? And it was, what, what baby? Because there was no, the remains, there wasn't the remains of a baby found in the area. So at first, you know, my opinion was maybe the baby was carried away by an animal or, you know, taken away for some reason. And I wasn't, you know, really uh, too much concerned because there was nothing we could do. If there was nothing we ourselves identifiers could do, if there were no remains to be analyzed. And then, and then the story starts. And I'll turn it over to Mindy now because that was amazing. The next chapter. So it's hard enough to get by in the world. On top of that, not being paid right by your employer and being cheated out of overtime, being cheated out of the hours that you work. It's not fair. And if you're going through that, it's important to seek help. At Summer Shorts, they've helped thousands of workers just like you and me to recover over $100 million of unpaid wages. Go to summerspc.com to sign up for a free case evaluation. Before we get to Mindy on that issue, I just want to just kind of emphasize. So you have two unidentified bodies that sat for 40 years, basically, and because of this new amazing thing, not so new, but applied to um, law enforcement, forensic investigative genetic genealogy, you were able to essentially identify these people. Yes, we did it about a week, maybe eight days, something like that. But um, yes, that's a very good point. We've had cases where we have Actually, we had one recently where the top match was the sister of our Jane Doe. So that was solved in about 30 seconds. Now, don't count on that every time. You know, we've had cases where it took right. me three years and about right. two and a half of those years was figuring out the DNA and how to get it to do it right because it was highly degraded. And then the genealogy followed and it took all you know, maybe three years 
to to solve. So you have a range, but we're solving them. We're solving them. You know, whether it's in the databases are growing, the technology is developing, the tools we have are becoming better and more specific. So, you know, the sky's the limit. I mean, I don't think all cases will be solved. There are many without DNA. And, you know, there there are many that say, if you have somebody from Yemen, we've had that, or Morocco, you know, there's the databases don't have those relatives, you know, don't have people of necessarily have those backgrounds. So the databases are limited, like all databases are. So even though, you know, I'll say we're, I did a survey a couple of years ago on how many cold cases would never have been solved if it wasn't for forensic genetic genealogy. And the answer was 37%. And that was the minimum because I didn't count like, you know, misdemeanors, felonies, lawfully OD. I didn't get into all of that. All I was counting was uh, as far as violent crime, um, people who were not, it didn't even have a traffic ticket. You know, they would never have been in CODIS or people who died before CODIS was put in place. So, you know, those would never have been solved except for forensic genetic genealogy. So you add into that, you know, people uh, lawfully owed DNA where they should have given their DNA and they didn't. Or, you know, I didn't go into which, which misdemeanors are collectible in which states and when. It was too complicated for our survey. So, you know, this is a, revol- a revolution in human identification. It has its limits, but still, nevertheless, it's a revolution right. in human identification. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'll get back to this at the end, but I think it's not just about cold cases. It's about cases that happen today. And, you know, using this tool, if, you, if you're not able to solve it through traditional means of DNA. So let me go to Mindy now. So we can talk about when did the AG's office get involved with the once this whole revelation about where's this baby comes out, right? Right. Colleen had actually um, graciously agreed to be on our advisory committee when we first started the unit. And so Colleen knew about our unit and they were able to tell us, um, hey, could you help work on this case out of Harris County? Our unit has to have a referral from the local agency before we can begin work. We can't just in- initiate our own investigation. So I believe at that point, um, Identifinders and the Lynn and Klaus families all reached out to Lieutenant Minshew with the Harris County Sheriff's Office asking if possibly the AG's office could assist on the case. And he was more than happy to turn that over to us not because he didn't care about the case, but they are extremely um, underwater with their own you know, additional cold cases. And so I right. think the idea of just having some extra hands on deck, you know, was, was enticing. So he allowed us to basically take the case and run with it. You know, we, we, he transferred what files there were. I would say they were very limited. Again, this was 1981, but we began Rachel and I just started started reviewing the file. And at that point, we, of course, we, we, we weren't optimistic. You know, you've got two dead bodies, the likelihood that this baby would now be a, you know, healthy adult living somewhere. We, we knew that was going to be a long shot, but really to help the, the underlying homicide case, we still needed the answers. And so, where do you go? The first thing you want to do is find out everything you can about who Holly was. So she was only about one years old at the time uh, that her parents were found murdered. 
And so we needed to get her birth records. That was sort of where you started. We wanted to know if we could get a hold of the birth certificate, if possibly they had a, a palm print or a footprint or a blood type, you know, something that would later on down the road possibly help us identify Holly. And so we reached out to the family just to get all the information about Holly's birth. At that point, we actually found out that there was a police officer already assigned to handle the missing persons part of the case. So Rachel um, and our group were brought in by the sheriff's office to help with the double homicide investigation. But Nick Mick, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, had actually reached out to Louisville Police Department, a small police department up in North Texas, where Tina and Dean had last lived. So that was sort of their last known address. And so Nick Mick reached out to Lieutenant Detective Holloman, actually, Lieutenant Minshew, Detective Holloman, asked Detective Holloman to help with the missing persons part of the case regarding the baby. So once we had his information, we reached out to him and learned he had actually tried unsuccessfully to get the birth records for Holly. And that was out of Florida. So that sort of led us to Florida. Another great thing about being in the AG's office is we were able to basically connect with the Florida AG's office and, and get assistance that way. We also had another person on our advisory committee, Sadie Darnell, who was a retired sheriff out of Florida. She was able to provide us a connection as well. And it turned out to be in the Florida AG's office. That all led us to Detective Wheeler. And I know there are a lot of parties involved in this, but I I can't emphasize enough how collaboration along with forensics solved this this part of the case. Detective Holloman, uh, I'm sorry, Detective Wheeler out of the Volusia County Sheriff's Office became very invested in this case early on and basically tracked down her birth records and he told us that we were going to have to have a court order to unseal the records, which was kind of surprising to all of us. Why do we need a court order for this? And that sort of hinted that there might be an adoption. Um, you know, that would be the only reason or one of the only reasons <laughs> we have to have a court order. And that got us very excited, you know, oh my gosh, yeah. if, if there is an adoption involved then that, baby was alive at some point, you know, and and we sort of had a spark of hope. And so through Detective Wheeler's tenacity um, and a really good judge in Florida, we were able to get those records unsealed. And, and then I'm about to turn this over to Rachel because that's where she really kicks in. But once we had those records, we knew Holly was in fact adopted in Arizona shortly before her parents were murdered. And that was so very- before. So she was given up before or taken before the murders occurred. That is correct. And so then it became just, I mean, everybody stopped what they were doing. And I think we worked on this just around the clock to try to get whatever records we could from Arizona, because we figured that's going to lead us to where Holly is and potentially maybe even the the suspects. So we again worked with the AG's office in Arizona this time, and they were incredibly helpful. So now we've got the Florida AG's office and you've got the Arizona AG's office. 
And they basically were able to do the same thing that Detective Wheeler had done in Florida, which was to get a court order to unseal the adoption records. And when we got those records, that is when I'll never forget the moment. I mean, it was, we've been waiting for the email to come in for, you know, months. And, you know, I think I was at a restaurant and here comes this ding. And I just, I, I, I laugh. I don't even know if I paid the bill. I was so excited. I just flew out the door, went into the car, started looking through the records and, you know, got Rachel and um, Brent Dupre, who is the director of our uh, division on the call. And we just frantically were trying to find information and it was a wealth of information. There were probably, I don't know, Rachel, what, 25 pages worth of um, documents. It, it even contained a social study that was done um, you know, prior to the adoption, but there was a formal adoption, uh, that had taken place and we were able to identify Holly and her adopted parents and the circumstances around the adoption through those records. And that's when Rachel, uh, really started working uh, her magic. So I'll turn it over to Rachel. So, yeah. So maybe, I mean, I think, I mean, I know the circumstances and it's quite fascinating. Maybe explain to the listeners, you know, why was this, or what information you had about why this baby was adopted out from her parents. Um, yeah. So that, that puts a whole nother layer into the story because it's already an interesting story that you have two homicide victims and then a baby that's adopted. But what's not been told yet is that um, the family informed us that when they went missing in 1980, that they had basically told their families they had joined a, a religious cult and they didn't want to have anything to do with their family anymore. So all these years, the family had believed that they had just left voluntarily, that they were hopeful they were living somewhere, had raised Holly, living, you know, the life that they wanted to live. They they never imagined that they were the victims of this homicide and that that Holly was adopted out and was living, you know, currently. Right. So um, so that that just brought that whole another level to it. So. Basically, when we were able to get all of the records, so the records from Florida, the records from Arizona, and we're able to really dig through there, um, like Mindy said, it was just a treasure trove of information. So we're able to see Holly was adopted on November 8th, 1980. And of course, um, Tina and Dean were found in January of 1981. So we have this really like short, condensed, and also just to back up a little bit, the last time the family had contact with um, Tina and Dean was October of 1980. So now we're looking at this very short time frame, October 1980, January 1981. What happened in this four months where two people end up dead, a baby is, you know, right. adopted, all of these things. So we're just going through these records. There was a home study done, kind of went into some more detail as far as who the adoptive parents were. Um, and so we just started really breaking this down, like how could this happen? What's, what's the most, um, logical thing that had occurred here? So, um, one of those things were, we're looking at the adoptive parents right. because how were they able to adopt this baby so easily? Um, there was a home study done, but the state of Arizona didn't really do much to try to find, um, any living relatives. Um, and I think that's because Tina and Dean actually signed over the rights to Holly to these adoptive parents. And I, I guess in 1980, um, you know, Arizona just felt like that's good enough for us. And, yeah. you know, it's going to be uh, during that time period really hard to track down maybe family members not knowing, you know, having any other identifiers of these people who gave up their baby. So um, just to kind of shorten that up, 
whatever the circumstances were, Arizona gave the baby legally to these adoptive parents. So um, the investigator in me um, was like, that just doesn't seem right. Um, that these people were just given this baby, surely they're involved somehow. Um, right. Maybe they're not involved in the homicide, but was this a situation where they saw um, this baby living in subpar conditions and thought, we'll do better for this baby, so we're going to figure out a way to get her, you know, weren't really sure how this all how this all was going to shake out. So from those early days of the investigation, we we're just trying to keep an open mind as to what the circumstances really could have been. And that's kind of how we framed how we were going to proceed, do interviews. And um, obviously, we identified Holly, found where she was living and how that notification was going to go. Perhaps the adoptive parents are somehow involved in some way. So you have to think about that in terms of your investigation. Correct. So um, when we start looking into them, you know, there are some interesting things about the adoptive parents as well. Um, the the adoptive father was a pastor for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which through the investigation, we found that the religious cult that Tina and Dean were a part of um, called Christ Family frequented um, Seventh-day Adventist churches because they were both vegetarian. So okay. the cult would go to the church often to be fed, get help, because they knew that the food they would be given would be vegetarian food. So we already had like a link there. And obviously we had the link already because in the home study, it was described that that Holly was given up by by these group members. So um, we just started really digging into that. Um, additionally, the adoptive dad is actually a citizen of another country. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot about him that we were able to find initially. So that also seemed a little suspicious to us. And it actually took us a while to fully identify the adoptive parents. Um, but once we did that, um, we saw that they were no longer together, um, that the adoptive father and Polly were living in Oklahoma, that the adoptive mother and um, their biological child were living in Arizona. So we started to develop a plan that we were going to try to interview all of these people at the same time so that we could identify any inconsistencies or, you know, maybe lies they may tell about the adoption um, because quite frankly, they were, they were, they were suspects. So we wanted to make sure that we did these interviews. We got a clean statement before they had a chance to talk to each other and maybe shore up, you know, if they were right. lying about anything. Right. And Mindy, were you involved in all this? I mean, I assume everybody, some people go to Oklahoma and some people go to Arizona, right? Right. We, we divided up. We, um, expanded our team a bit, recruited some volunteers, and there was a team that went to Arizona and then myself and Detective Holloman, if you remember me talking about him from Louisville PD. Again, it was his missing persons case. So we felt strongly that he needed to be the one notifying Holly so that he could close that missing persons case on his end. And so I went with uh, Detective Holloman to notify Holly and then a couple of other investigators from our office joined me in Oklahoma because they they needed to interview the father, the adopted father at the same time we were making notification to Holly. So it was a very orchestrated effort. And I've got to say, I cannot believe it went off as well as it did, just trying all those moving parts. And, you know, who would have thought that everybody would have been in town at the same time and not on vacation? I mean, we... Uh, Mm -hmm. It's amazing how we were able to pull that off uh, on the same day at the same time. 
So tell us how it was when you went and met with Holly. One of those moments that I will absolutely never forget. It was a definitely a, a career highlight um, and just an emotional highlight. Um, by the way, she was about, what, 42 years old now? 42 years old, a mother of five. She was working at a deli in a very, very small town in Oklahoma. Uh, Detective Holloman and I went up to the deli before opening hours, knocked on the door. Is Holly Miller here? Holly, you know, they called for her and we thought, oh my gosh, this is it. Wow. We, you know, we feel like we know her so well and we're about to probably just rock her world. And it was a very intense moment. She came to the door. She could not have been friendlier. Just if you ever meet Holly, she's just so genuine and, 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 and nice and welcoming. And she's, hi, I'm Holly. What can I do for you? And we said, well, do you have a minute? We'd like to come in and talk with you. And of course, I always, I joke now with Holly and Craig Holloman because Holloman gives her this long story for like 10 minutes and I'm holding Holly's hand and I'm like, you're not in any trouble. You're not in any trouble. (laughs) I'm like, get to the point, Holloman. But anyway, he finally tells her who she is and she, oh, it was just an amazing moment. She actually knew she had been adopted. Uh, Her parents had been very honest with her. Uh, had a her very adopted good, parents. Her adopted parents had been um, had a very good upbringing, very religious upbringing, and so at the same time this is happening, I'm texting with Rachel and other members of our team because they needed to know. All right, is is this Philip guy? You know, her father, her adopted father, a monster, or is he actually a really decent man? And we learned in the meeting with Holly that. He actually was a very decent man. She had a very close relationship with him. So I'm trying to text this to them so that they can do their job. But at the same time, you know, trying to, to explain to Holly why we're there and, and, and her background. Uh, the last thing I'll say about that, there's a, a photo that's all over the Internet. I never intended for that photo to be used I mean, in any way other than just to show her biological family. You know, they didn't know that we had found her. We kept that within our own office, you know, obviously, because we didn't know what we had until we knew. And so I wanted to capture that moment when she looked at the photo of her parents holding her and she just became overcome with emotion. And I asked if I could take that photo just to share with the family. And she said, absolutely. And then later she allowed us to, to share that with the public, but um, it, it was a great way to capture that moment. And then just a few hours later, we had her on a Zoom call um, with her biological family, meeting them for the first time. It was, it was amazing. Wow. That's amazing. Did she know that her parents had been murdered? She did. And actually she thought that they had actually perished. And I don't want to say murdered. She knew they had died because she had assumed that they were, she knew they were part of a cult is what the way she described it, a religious group. And she thought it was actually the Waco, uh, David Koresh group, and that they had perished in the Waco uh, fire. But uh, we explained that was not the case. All right. So Rachel, how about you from your end at over in Arizona? Uh, so as Mindy and Detective Holloman are speaking to Holly, we have another couple of investigators um, speaking to the adoptive father and myself and Tony Carter are speaking to the adoptive mother. And then another group of investigators are, are speaking to the sister. 
Um, and it all, it all kind of worked out all about the same time, not exactly the same time. Um, but as we're doing the interviews and we're all texting each other and trying to stay in communication, it, it became pretty clear that she was just adopted, that there wasn't anything nefarious about the adoption and there wasn't any reason to not believe that she was just, you know, given up to them, um, by the group. So that became pretty evident as we're doing the interviews. Um, and so that kind of changes the way you're, you're doing the interview, right? So like initially they're suspects and we, you know, we have to like think of them that way. But then as we're going through, we're like, well, no, now we just need to try to get as much details as we can about this group that that gave her up, anything that would help us identify, you know, other people that we can speak to, because now obviously our focus is trying to find the last people who were ever with Tina and Dean, which, you know, now we're finding out is most likely this, this group of people. So um, it kind of shifted our, our mindset a little bit. Now we're just trying to get as many details out of them as possible. And of course it's 40 years has passed and memories get foggy and details aren't exactly, you know, clear anymore. And you can't remember exactly everything that happened, but their story is pretty much lined up, you know, with the exception of a few small things. Um, and they gave us as much background information as they could. And we just had to take what they gave us um, to move forward and then try to identify the members of this group and find them. Okay. So, um, Fair to say that the case just remains, it's unsolved still at this point, despite the fact that you've been able to do this amazing work to find Colleen involved and identifying the bodies and now baby Holly. Colleen, when did you find out about the fact that they had found this child? I think it was shortly after, you know, the whole interviews with the family members. And of course, you know, we're minding our own business. We've already kind of gone on to something else. And to get a call like that, I mean, my hair caught fire, basically, sitting here, spontaneous combustion. And it was <laughs> like all the ray, all the buzz. You know, we wanted to know all about Holly and everything. And she's such a sweet person. And by the way, she's writing a book, not about her experiences. She was writing a book on spiritual things, and she's including some of this in her book. It's coming out soon. I don't know the name of it, but we're still in touch. And, you know, it was it was amazing that, you know, you squeeze through like a keyhole with the forensic genealogy. You know, you don't know anything on this side. And then you go through this keyhole of identifying it, and it has exploded on the other side. There's so much there. Right that is not otherwise accessible. You know, you'd never know. And this happens in a lot of cases. You just, you know, touch the the detonator and you have so much else that happens. This is just an amazing story on how how it all works for the best. What would you want your the listeners to know? Like what's your message to them in terms of the impact of the case or the outcome or lessons learned kind of thing? Um, my my thought is that this is, you know, a good thing, you know, that uh, forensic genetic genealogy, people are worried about their privacy, public safety, everything like that. And this is a beautiful example about how it really works, how it's a good thing and how we all benefit from cases like this. You know, it's one person in a small town in Oklahoma, but look at all the good it did. So keep that right. in mind as we continue the debate about developing this tool for the common good. All right. Very good lesson. How about you, Rachel? Uh, I would just echo what Colleen said that, you know, there's a lot of people that have negative um, thoughts about what this technology can do. But at the end of the day, you could turn anything into a negative. 
And as long as you are using it correctly and you're not violating rights as they think that you are, because again, I want to reiterate that the people in these databases volunteer. They are fully aware that their, their DNA could be used for a law enforcement purpose and they agree to that. Um, so I would just encourage people, you know, please put your, your DNA into the database. They're not getting your medical information. It's nothing like that. It's a very small snippet of your DNA that would just help law enforcement solve crime and reunite families. The other thing before I finish with Mindy is, you know, people, one of my messages about this powerful tool is it's not just solving crime, it's preventing future crime because, and it's exonerating people. I mean, I'm super proud that we've been involved in exonerations, but you know, the sooner, you know, if you have a rape series happen today and you get DNA and you do everything you can to solve it with the DNA databank, and if it doesn't work, this is the next step. And this is, I mean, the sooner you, we've got, we've seen cases across the country that were solved in 36 days. That's incredible that are active cases. So to me, yeah, it's, I mean, I love like you guys, I love cold cases, but I also believe very much in, you know, solving current crime and preventing future crime. And I'm sure you guys all agree with that. So what about you, Mindy? Oh, I mean, good Lord. I echo everything you guys have just said. And I think when I talk to Holly, I mean, let's just, her own words are, please opt in. I would not know my identity. If, you know, not only had people not opted in, had people like Colleen not been persistent and had the Florida AG's office not picked up our call. I mean, it. there were so many things that had to happen and collaboration is just key in this. And I, I try to tell that to the law enforcement, you know, when we do these trainings, um, you know, it's not just the police work, it's everything together. But the collaboration is just, I cannot uh, oversay it. It was just incredible. And just to be a part of that moment, it, it kind of re, it, it just sort of made us um, feel like, you know what, I'm really glad we, we created this unit after all. It was a lot of validation. I mean, it was our first case. And here's the face of Holly Miller looking at us. And right. it just, it was a, a really good validation that, that this is important work and, you know, that we're glad that we were able to start this unit. Yeah, well, I'm super proud of the work you guys did on this case. Well, I want to thank all of you, uh, everyone here, for sharing your insight and your experience on this case. Thank you for your passion and persistence in finding baby Holly and identifying her parents. Um, to our listeners, thank you for joining in. You can find more podcasts on olismedia.com, and you can also join our mailing list. So thanks so much. Have a great day. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olas Media in San Diego, California. To listen to more episodes, visit InsideTheCrimeFiles.com. Olas Media. Have you ever wanted to visit Barch and Ash, but you're under 21? It's great news. Right now, we're 18 and up at select locations. That's right. You grab all that good stuff you've been eyeing. And we got all that nice green stuff for everybody. Get more information on our website.